0: by our two biggest fans, <laughs> <laughs> the two listeners we have, welcome back to Witness in America. My name is Tom Bell. I'm Erica Britt, and we're here with episode ten. Uh, we have um, Eric and I were talking, and we you know we had a little bit of a break before uh, between this 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 episode and our previous episode, which was a live recording, just because life happens here in the academy, and we tend to lose time between November and December, and uh, we were talking about what we can do to. Feature and present space for folks that are younger than us mm-hmm. that are the next wave of activists um, coming up and how do we get that message out because part of the conversation at least from my perspective has been um, and Erica too and I, is that I think young young folks get a bad rap about mm-hmm. being just um, internet activists right. and so we wanted to, to debunk that a little bit and provide space for two of our recent graduates here at the University of Michigan Flint to have some time so we're joined here um, do you want to do introductions? Yeah,
1: so we have Tyrese Denson. Hello everybody. And we have Lucene Jarrett. Hello. Okay, and like as Tom said, like this whole understanding of young activists I think is totally off because most of the activists I know are people who I want to be when I grow up, right? <laughs> and when I see the work that you guys have done on our campus and in the community, um, I'm really inspired by what you do. And this is just kind of our chance to like, you know, like for me to like fangirl, first of all, like just really kind of be in your presence and also, Get your sense of you know what is the work that you do and what impact do you think you're having, and then what? Where are some gaps you know in our so our campus society, our local society? Like what are the things that need um, fixing?
0: And obviously bring voice to um, your current work with the one you campaign and provide mm-hmm. space. If you'd like to talk about that too, mm-hmm. I have my button probably displayed on my bag at we'll all times. Love time, to see So because um, <laughs> so I don't put on a jacket, I take my jacket off often, so my my bag goes everywhere. But yeah, I think what you all are starting with that and and the work that you put into that is I think really um, important and and really great. And so giving space Mm -hmm. for that too.
2: So tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Taris, you wanna go first?
2: Yeah, I guess I can start. Uh, So I graduated from uh, U of Flint back here uh, in April, 2019. I was a political science major. Um, Eventually the plan is for me to go to law school. Uh, Recently last year, I ended up uh, picking up a job with the lecturers union. So I'm now an organizer for them. So I do a lot of work around the 1U campaign and just uh, getting us prepared for bargaining um, and things like that. I am from the Flint area. I was born in Flint um, when I was in elementary school. I moved off to Burton and graduated from Athens High School. And I think growing up in Burton gave me like an interesting mix. Like I was mm-hmm. in this middle class suburb, but then I was also still extremely connected to the city of Flint because I have so much family living in the city. Um, so seeing a lot of the struggles that they've kind of gone through and had to deal with, um, I definitely wasn't blind to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's inspired a lot of uh, the things that have like interested me um, in my work and uh, it, it motivates me to really like try to empower those people that don't necessarily feel empowered mm-hmm. um, just through their life circumstances. Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome.
2: That liberatory yeah. practice.
3: That's right. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Hi. Uh, so I'm Lucene, Um I'm from Grand Blanc, uh, and I recently graduated from of with a Bachelor's in Political Science. Um, during my freshman year here, I actually started my own organization called Cinema's Finest, uh, which was an organization um, dedicated to youth empowerment through the arts. Um, and I was president of that organization for four years until I handed down, uh, when was it, April? Yeah. April uh, 2019. Um, and uh, I, can, I think that was probably the beginning of my organizing experience really with Cinema's Finest. It was the first time that I kind of had the opportunity to do a lot of outreach in the community um, and kind of create the space. Um, because originally it was just an idea that, you know, I love movies and I want to kind of create this opportunity for people to come together and watch movies with me and share my passion with everybody. Uh, but then I realized that I think that there's an opportunity to do something bigger in this space. And that was to kind of talk about a variety of different social and political issues relevant to our time. Um, And that's what it kind of grew into. Um, And I'm really happy and proud to say that it's been a tremendous success. Um, I think we started off uh, my freshman year with about 10 consistent members, and I think we've grown now into about 25 to 30 members, um, which has been really, really, really great. So yeah, and then uh, in 2018, I was fortunate enough to serve as a student body vice president, um, where I kind of got to explore a lot of these things a little bit more. Um, and expand my organizing experience and it's actually where we started one university um, in the Flint campus Um, and in that role um, I think a major priority to me was to kind of restructure student government so that it became this hub for student advocacy on campus because I think that up until then there had been a lot of misconceptions about what student government really was and what it was capable of doing Um, and so that became a huge priority for us and we built our platform based on this um, variety of issues specifically related to civic engagement. Um, and yeah, and then uh, the One University campaign started in January um, and that was an opportunity for us to kind of uh, push that cam- p- campaign forward in Flint where it had uh, kind of been moving a little bit slow, slower mm-hmm. than in uh, Dearborn and uh, Ann Arbor. Um, and uh, recently we started the Flint chapter here um, and it's been really, really, really successful. We've been doing a lot of outreach right now and trying to recruit members. Um, and getting people kind of to know a lot more, a little bit about what 1U is, um, what the mission is, what our platform is. Um, yeah, and that's where we're at now. So, mm-hmm. what is
0: 1U? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 1U. We have uh, listeners all over the world. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
3: so, yeah, oh, we so. Will.
2: People
3: will go back. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, 1U is a campaign that's uh, seeking to kind of pressure the University of Michigan to provide and allocate the funding and resources um, necessary to support the Flint and Dearborn campuses. Um, this is in response to the insufficient funding for programming that we receive here in Flint, um, you know, the uh, departmental cuts that we've been seeing, the uh, pay disparities in our faculty, um, and a variety of other things. One thing that is kind of important to us, a little bit more important to us, which was, I don't want to say more important, I'm sorry, uh, but DEI, which was mm-hmm. Diversity, mm-hmm. Equity, and Inclusion. Um, and we found out uh, at the start of the campaign that Ann Arbor receives $85 million. In funding for their DEI programming, and uh, Flint and Dearborn received zero, um, and that that was particularly shocking to us because um, you know coming from a city like Flint and um, trying to figure out how it was possible for us to not be receiving any type of support for these issues that um, are disproportionately affecting students in Flint um, was just shocking to us. Um, and one thing that kind of came out of the Regents meeting um, and what inspired our the proposal that we would come to write uh, later on was. Um, we just, we felt like there was this urgency that we felt to address these issues Mm -hmm. that wasn't communicated to administrators um, and the regents on a higher level. Um, And that was something that was really, really um, frustrating to us and disheartening because we spent such a long time campaigning and advocating for these things and telling our stories um, and yet the responses we were getting were, it's not our problem essentially. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, and I I'm think um, no, okay. I think Lucene used the word shocking. I would say the lack of DEI funding on our campuses is shocking, but it's also just so disappointing. And I think people um, on campuses like in Flint and Dearborn, uh, we can kind of get stuck in a situation where we just feel like we're, we're hopeless and there's nothing that we can do to improve the student situations here. Um, because of our budgets and yes we are these individual campuses but we're also all part of the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, Every student here is a University of Michigan student when they get a degree it's gonna say University of Michigan and we are one of the most prestigious universities in the world Mm -hmm. we have one of the world's largest endowments there's no reason why this university isn't providing those types of resources and especially like Lucene said being in a city like Flint that is obviously um, going through a terrible water crisis, but mm-hmm. that wasn't the start of problems um, for fluent <laughs> residents. So uh, we do just think that our university should be doing a whole lot to really impact the people in the city um, that they exist in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we feel we have that duty and that obligation, and right now we're not necessarily fulfilling it. Mm-hmm. So,
1: well, it makes me think of like the amazing parallel between that. Like we're, we're part of the University of Michigan, the world-class institution, and yet clearly some of us are not getting supported. It makes me think of the United States, right? Greatest nation, so called greatest nation in the in the world, and yet we can see this inequality showing up in almost every corner of our country. And so
0: we just don't generate enough revenue.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, right. <laughs> of course. There's not enough money for these problems. Just but like some of our
0: poor areas. They just yeah, don't generate enough revenue. Exactly. If they just did that then they'd be fine.
1: But it's that kind of response. And I'm curious for you as young activists, like when you encounter like that when that reality hits you of the ways that it doesn't this this reality shouldn't be given what the resources are and given what the possibilities are how do you move forward like what do you what do you do when you hit those that when you encounter like with people who are just not as um, adamant about it as you are or who are just not even like it's not even they're not even aware yeah. i guess or maybe they don't care to be aware what do you, what happens, and what's your process? Well,
2: you? I think we definitely ran into this when we first uh, put together right. our Mora proposal. We, Our first step was to kind of go to administrators, mm-hmm. um, An issue with that is a lot of administration thinks in this business type uh, mindset, and like you said, so we don't generate enough revenue to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so that frustrated us, because it didn't seem like we were going to move forward anywhere with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Lucine had the idea um and I kind of like I had thought of it but then Lucine came to me probably in August and was like well who is this really about who are we talking about impacting here um and it was students right so we decided to then turn from meeting with administrators first to okay let's go to students let's get their stories let's get their input on this and we think that their ideas can make this something uh that the administration has to listen to at least in some way
3: yeah and I you know I think that it it was it was incredibly frustrating meeting with people on campus, um, because a lot of the responses that we received were this isn't our problem, this is a student affairs problem, mm-hmm. or you need to meet with enrollment to talk about these specific issues, um, and it seemed like, you know, the you know, the entire project was kind of being pushed away from everybody because of the silos that are created mm-hmm. in higher education, um, and this whole idea that you know every department should be working on their own thing and that there isn't there shouldn't be a lot of collaboration, and so. That kind of frustrated us a lot, and so we decided to kind of go back to the drawing board a bit and figure out, okay, so if we're going to make sure that this is successful and we want to make sure that it is representative of the students that go here, um, then we need to actually meet with students Mm -hmm. and we need to make sure that we're addressing the concerns um, that they have um, in order to kind of then design the types of support systems that would help them on campus. Um, And so that's exactly what we did. Um, we decided to meet with a lot of the um, identity-based organizations on campus. So we met with Black Student Union. We met with uh, the Muslim Student Association, Latinas United for Advancement, um, and a variety of other student organizations. Um, and we sat down and we just had conversations. Mm-hmm. And we had conversations with them about, you know, what do what types of issues impact you on campus? Um, what types of support systems do you want to see? Um, and then we went back and we designed our proposal based on those conversations. Um, and yeah. That was, that was an incredibly empowering experience and it kind of, it actually, I'm so sorry, you <laughs> uh, it kind of got me to think about a lot of the organizing experience that I had in the past because, um, in this process, shared vision was super, super important mm-hmm. to us. And we really wanted to make sure that, you know, we were actually, we were coming to people with our idea, but we were having, we were having them be a part of the vision, right? Mm-hmm. And we were having them, um, put their ideas into what was ultimately going to become mm-hmm. this proposal. Um, And so that it wasn't just something Tyrese and I were working on, it was something that we had we had a collective vision about, Mm -hmm. Um, and that was vitally important to the process of creating the um, proposal. Absolutely, you should probably name by now. Yeah, we should.
2: But I think that that's. I mean, that's called the proposal. (laughs) 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 The proposal. a terrible (laughs) 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 Um. Anyway, sorry. No, I I think that that's how I view organizing in general. Um, as a union organizer, most of my conversations start with what do you want or where do you want to go where do i think we could go and then Mm. how can i help you get there with me you know Mm -hmm. how can we go there together um so i think that was an important part of when we were working on this uh strategic plan to recruit and empower uh students from underrepresented backgrounds and you presented at this you presented in uh in uh, Kalamazoo, right? Yeah. Yes, we did. Yeah, we had the recently, yeah. to present there. Yes. Yeah, back in November, October. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think so. It's it's just about, a lot of those conversations started with what do you, what are you currently able to do here at this university, and what more could you get from the university mm-hmm. to help you um, better empower the students that you are trying to help support and represent on this campus? Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you bring this up about going to the different
0: organizations and doing this work, and, and so I was Friday I was at a, um, another university doing a workshop with some uh, leaders on campus about whiteness and um, at the end of the day we started talking about how do we center, how do they, how do you center voices? How do you center that experience of minoritized students on campus, right? And so, um, and I was looking around the room and in this room there are 13 white faces staring back with me and two people of color on this leadership team. And one of the things that we didn't talk about because um, we will probably end up working with them in the future on stuff, and, and we were doing their own kind of self-work that day, mm-hmm. um, was a need-to-find um, process for creating space mm-hmm. for those voices that aren't there to be there. Because um, when you switch paradigms and you actually start centering the experience of either students, faculty, or staff that have minoritized identities, I, as a white guy, can't do that. Even if you and I have these really great conversations, I can't go and be like, I know what the Black Student Union wants, or I know what the Muslims do, right? Because the voices aren't actually at the table having that dialogue, right? And so we at the institution develop these committees and these committees are supposed to be representative, Mm -hmm. but they're not because when you look around the room, they're still representing the dominant narrative hegemonic framework, even if the faces don't represent that. And so it's difficult to have that. So I think what you're doing is super important it's just finding ways to get what you've done I- in the space so that way you also can be heard and the voices that you're bringing together can be heard to, to make that change. Because when I met with the two of you back in July or June, it was the end, of, you had just graduated, I think, mm-hmm. so maybe it was May. Um, I was really inspired by what you were doing and you know I wish the things that we had talked about panned out, but because of budget issues, we lost the staff person that was going to be doing the work in the field the community and so those things just mm-hmm. didn't happen and so um but that's on me right so i think my hope is is that, that you will find ways to infiltrate and get your message I- if you can't be there into the hands that of people that can okay these are the allies that we have on this work mm-hmm. these are the accomplices if you will mm-hmm. in, in doing this work better so
3: yeah and I, I sorry i will add that you know since we're on this podcast i just yeah. want to give a shout out to you know both of you and the numerous faculty members that were extremely supportive mm-hmm. of this proposal because we were not getting it from the administrative mm-hmm. level. We were not getting it from vice chancellors or the chancellor himself. Like We were hearing, oh yeah, this is great, this looks great, and then no contact afterwards. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, no no interest in actually going through the proposal and reading it and offering feedback. Um, and then there was several times that we were asked to sit, we asked to sit on the, uh, the strategic plan for enrollment yeah. right now, yeah, no, is no, that no, what yeah, it, it is? Accurate. Yeah. Um, and we weren't. <laughs> nobody reached out to us. Um, and I think now they have a couple students mm-hmm. um, uh, sitting on the committee, which is great. Uh, but for a very, very long time, you know, when, we were, when we were first collecting the data for the proposal, um, nobody wanted to give us anything. Um, and I know that, in general, educational data is really, really hard to find. Um, but what we ended up doing was we ended up reaching out to community-based organizations and asking, do you have some data for us? And one specifically that we looked at was Focus on Flint, which was the report that came out of the Mott Foundation, um, where they think they surveyed, um, I'm not sure what the number was.
2: Yeah, they went through a little process. I'm not sure exactly what their survey process looked like. Yeah,
3: but they went through and they rated um, different things. Uh, Specifically, the one we looked at was education. Um, And then we actually reached out to one of the representatives and asked them if they could help us navigate the Michigan data website. And that's actually how we ended up getting all of this data that we now presented in the report. Um, And we cross-referenced it with a lot of the data that we finally received um, from U of M Flint. Um, And this is where we kind of figured out that, you know, this 13% that reporting for first-gen students, that's not right. That's a significant undercount. And then we went through and we explored that a little bit more and realized that that number is probably closer to 27, 30%. Um,
0: I agree with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking also, like, I've, s- I've seen your faces quite a bit on campus and like taking the charge and, and taking the lead. And th- I've seen, and there's like cycles on our campus where students are very active and very visible in, in making certain um, claims and demands for um, what would make our campus better. And then I've also seen lulls. And I'm curious, what's your sense of the student body? Like where, what's the mindset of our students in terms of their willingness to stand up the way that you're standing up or their ways, their willingness to engage and what may be something that helps them engage, or what are some things that are getting in their way?
2: So I think with I think there's always the opportunity there to find those student le- leaders. And I think that when we talk about like mentoring um, and making those different connections, that's why that's so important. Um, because it can be hard at times, you can feel like you're the only one doing that. Um, But I think even having one other person in the room with you that's fighting for the same things can make you feel so much more confident. It can keep you motivated. Um, And I think it's a struggle with student leaders because we are only here for a short period of time and, and things at the university move so slow. Um. So it is. That was one of the things that we talked about. Is how does this plan become sustainable? We're going to mm-hmm. be leaving in That's a relatively right. short amount of time. And then um, like to
1: wait students out. Yeah. Absolutely. That's absolutely.
2: <laughs> and that was even one of the reasons why we went to student groups. Is that we're hoping that um if they these things get embedded within these student groups. That's why with the one university campaign we've created these student orgs on campus. Um, they can. Be a continuous sense of student leaders that are pushing these ideas, and they don't just fall apart after certain students graduate.
3: I mean, you really, you really have to do the groundwork. I would say I think that it's it's really really important. It goes back to my whole you know philosophy on you know shared vision and shared vision practices um, in these spaces, um, and I think that um, for me. What makes you know? What makes one university unique? What makes you know? I'm gonna give my work a shout out to Cinema's finest unique, and what makes you know? All of these things, all of these organizations, active organizations on campus, unique is that you can't do it alone, Mm -hmm. right? You can't do this work alone, and I think that when you come in with that type of message and um, you really bring people together and you give them the opportunity to talk about their experiences. I think, I think it works, and I think most of the time you find that people are really willing to engage with you, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're um, reaching out to them in a very intentional way, and it's mm-hmm. not just, um, here's an opportunity for you to speak now, and then never again, mm-hmm. right? It's, an oppo- it's like every step of the way you are going to be a part of this process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not just going to hear you at this level, we're going to hear you at every single level, um, and I think that that <coughs> was really, really important when it came to... Uh, putting together the proposal and doing a lot of the um, advocacy work for one university was making sure that people felt heard and making sure people had the opportunity to share their stories every step of the way.
0: Mm-hmm. So what's the next step for your proposal? So th- as, you know.
2: as as we've been working with things um, there has been, it, we haven't been as active as we wish that we could have been with it um and i think in recent months but i actually just like emailed Lucine like last week about this like mm-hmm. here's where i think we should go um and i and i also think in work like this it can be easy to get discouraged and you mm-hmm. feel like you're not reaching your goals as quickly as you would like but we had like what seven initial goals in our proposal yeah. um and looking at it realistically we've accomplished Three, if not four mm-hmm. of them, yeah. uh, which I think, which, I, yeah, which yeah, which I think is really useful because like we push for the diversity council that they have been talking about reforming um, for a good while. We push for it to be formed by the end of the semester, and now the DEI committee is there, um, even though it wasn't perfect in the way that that was formed, of mm-hmm. course. Um, so our next step. So the the next step for us, I think, is the bigger item in our proposal is the creation of that multicultural um, outreach ambassador program. I think that that's the piece of that that really has the chance to change the university from something that uh, I say, the University of Michigan Flint right now we pride ourselves on being a pillar that helps stabilize the Flint community. We think that program can help begin to transform the community. Can I ask this question then because I've been dying to ask it since you all walked in, do you mind? Mm -hmm. You asked
0: the Chancellor a question. At the uh, town hall, I think you were the only student or former student that asked a question, and your question—I don't want to paraphrase. Do can you repeat your question? As uh, you remember, the the, <laughs> the initial
2: one was in response to the the idea to go to um, areas like Northern Ohio and like, Chicago and Washington D.C. to recruit students. Right. And your question, I think, was how I do we the support change. the community? Yeah, right, and I, yeah, yeah. It was about it was so in both of my questions, my follow-up question today even um, was about. For me, it would seem to make more sense for us to um, focus on the people in Flint and then providing that support for those Flint students um, financially and other um, resource-wise to help them be successful here. Um, Because I don't think that we can wait 10 years to say, we're gonna have a different university with a larger enrollment and then go and try to support these Flint students because I don't know if the current environment in Flint is sustainable if we don't do the work to transform it before it then. And his response, and I'm
0: paraphrasing, I could be wrong, because this is, this is what I heard, is that we don't ethically want to bring yeah. in students that we can't support, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So on one end, there's acknowledgement that the university, and so this is the, this, mm-hmm. the research scholar of whiteness coming out, saying someone's finally admitting that this place is not built. For the community in which we serve. Mm -hmm. On the other end, it's still saying, well, you know, we're we're still not going to, we're not going to fix the environment. We're going to have to pull in a bunch of other folks first, and then we'll bring in the community, which seems to be, and I think, what was your response? Backwards. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think you said that directly, but that's no, what but I heard yeah, you say, yeah, yeah. is that that yeah. seems like backwards yeah, framing. Yeah, that's right. um, well, we're
1: going to continue yeah. serving the people that we were built to serve.
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then right.
1: maybe we'll get around to the other people that we're, like, there's no revolutionary understanding of what our work is and what's our right. commitment. Yeah, we're going to keep
3: doing that and then continue to <laughs> disproportionately exclude yeah, the people exactly. with the greatest exactly. need. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. We'll, we'll, or we'll tokenize and bring in a certain a percentage of population, and I know they won't say that because of quota issues, but mm-hmm. like... We'll bring a certain group of population from the area in to say that we're still representing the local community while doing that, and I think that was I was really interested by the exchange, and I know that um, I ran into one of the other One U folks after the meeting and. That person was pretty pissed by the response. <laughs> I, I can person. imagine. <laughs> uh, so I can imagine that that was extrapolated out. Did you feel heard? I mean, that
2: would be my question. Or do you think your question was understood to the point of being heard? I would say I didn't feel heard, and I guess in a way this is disappointing. I didn't expect to be heard. Yeah. Um, I think that we had had some of those conversations mm-hmm. um, prior to that town hall, um, and I think I'm in a position where it's like I'm going to speak my mind, even if if I'm not being heard mm-hmm. and eventually you will hear me. And, and, and if we're able to rally enough people and we're all saying the same things, then you have no choice, but to eventually not just hear us, but to listen. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What's your advice to young organizers?
0: Young, I mean, I, we, we've labeled you as young activists. I don't know if that's a label you want to hold onto, but what's your advice to the, you know, the, the first year of college student who may not be 18 or 19, but might be 26 or 27, because this university Another you know, the universities, the, the range of what a first year college student is, but mm-hmm. what's your advice to folks that are getting into this field of being disruptors, agitators, activists, whatever lens you want to put on that?
2: Uh, I would just say connections. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, me and Lucene, we, we knew each other before we were on student government. Um, we worked on a lot of things through student government and from that, like a great friendship grew. And we work on a lot of things still together, even though we graduated. And like I said earlier, it's, it's always having the other person in the room that you know is supporting you. Um, because I think the, the friends you make, the colleagues that you connect with, they will be the ones to motivate you and encourage you in those moments that you don't think you have the capacity to do it anymore. Um, so I think that that's the most important thing for me, is just connect with good people that have similar ideas to you.
3: Yeah, um, I would have to agree. And I think that um, at the heart of that is just really understanding that when you come from this unified position, your message is stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and having putting your faith in that 100%. Um, and I think that a lot of the things that we were able to c- accomplish in the past year were because we were able to kind of rally a lot of people around these issues, people who genuinely cared and just they just weren't reached out to at that point. They just mm-hmm. didn't know that there was an opportunity for them to get involved in this. Um, and I think that that became super, super, super important to us. And I know I've repeated this several times, but I think that that's, that's really that's really what it is for us is just making sure that we're getting people involved and understanding that in order for us to succeed and to change outcomes, we need to make sure that everybody's represented. Represented. Everybody's brought to the table. Um, and uh, yeah, I was going to add to the previous thing that you had mentioned about um, the proposal, but I'll add that later. On.
0: Please that's
2: do. I
3: can. No, I was just going to say that. And in, and in the, the t- what was the it was at the town. It wasn't the town hall. It was the time that. Um, they were meeting for the, um,
2: the strategic the plan. Strategic
3: enrollment yeah. Um, forms. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you went to that, but we we were at the, was it for retention? I ones? was in
0: the first one. I didn't go to the second one. Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Was I think in was the Yeah,
3: we went to the second one. Right. Um, we went to that, and we, we we knew it was open to everybody. And when we got there, we realized we were the only two uh, students there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sat through the entire thing, and, and we listened to everybody ask their questions, and then at the very end. Um, I remember I raised my hand and I said that I think that when you talk about graduation, retention, and recruitment, something that you really, really need to understand is I don't think that we can even begin to bring up these topics until we've decided that we need to reconstruct the spaces here at Flint Mm -hmm. and make sure that we are building the support systems that are necessary to begin this recruitment process Mm -hmm. and to begin to be talking about what a comprehensive outreach model looks like for Flint. Um, And when we communicated that to them, we just it was just silent <laughs> it was just silence in the room um and it was it was kind of it was frustrating once again it was incredibly frustrating because it was like it, it seems like this is something that you would you would need to think about uh, when we when we think about questions of what enrollment really means what recruitment really means what retention really means um and it seems that uh people are more interested in kind of creating these standalone programs, these adding these different policies and just kind of moving on with their day and not really understanding that this process needs to be very intentional. Um, and that that was just something I wanted to add. Oh yeah, and just in
2: inclusive, and I think you talked about like, even with our proposal or with Cinema's Finance, some of our work on 1U, is just making um, that a constantly just like, having that relationship be concurrent and happening at the same time because I think with a lot of university committees and things it's like okay the administrators and the staff we're gonna create these committees we're gonna decide what they're gonna look like this was the issue we had with the DEI committee we're gonna decide who should be on this committee and then now we'll welcome students in and it's like students have to be a part of building what that is if it's meant for them um, and I think that's the only way you can make something truly inclusive no
3: and I think to go back to the original question about empowering students I think you have to meet them where they are. I think that that is vitally important to this process is um, making sure that we're meeting them where they are, making sure that we are addressing the needs, making sure that we're hearing them and listening to their stories, um, because that's that's really what leadership is all about, Mm -hmm. um, what true leadership is
1: all about. Yeah. I mean, like, your model for engagement is just so contrary, I think, to how business as usual is typically done, right? Like, it's de- it's definitely historically been, we're going to tell you. Or we even have a vision, like, we have students here, but, oh, they're getting in the way of yeah. our vision of who we think we are. Like, oh, we have to put right. money and effort into these people. No, 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 that's not what we're, no, we were we were, we were planning to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but now we have to, like, pay attention. Yeah. And so I think there's always, like, that you see that realization happening in the middle of these but when we raise these questions like oh you really weren't intending to <laughs> see me <Yeah. laughs> you know and how do we get seen so um i thank you for raising those mm-hmm. making that awareness because i think it's a shift in how we do business as usual it's a shift like we need a fundamental shift oh, in yeah. all of our ways of doing business that we can talk about inclusion all we want but if our everyday structures are the same it's going to be produced the same stuff so.
0: And I'm not really a big fan of DEI as a whole at universities because I feel like it's more focused on the diversity piece, Mm -hmm. which is strictly numerical counting, right? right? And so (laughs) it doesn't really get at the equity piece, which is at the center of it. And even inclusion work is not, I think, the level it needs to be. It really should be we're equity and justice oriented at an Mm -hmm. institution, and that's really where we're going. And so I do want to say that I think your voices have been heard a little bit. Um, And so one of the things that you'll see say this, but one of the pieces that we're trying to work into both the work of the DEI group and the strategic enrollment management stuff is this concept of equity and what it really means, because what they've been using or what was initially proposed to use was Ann Arbor's definition of equity, which is basically equality, which Mm -hmm. is not the same. So So what's being proposed is equity is defined as both a framework and the action that is guided by that framework. An equity-oriented framework recognizes the pervasiveness of persisting institutional racism, historic and exclusionary practices, disparities, and sense of belonging. Furthermore, equity-centered practices disrupt and dismantle how the institution has legitimized and valued the knowledge and perspectives and strengths of dominant identity, folks, white, male, heteronormative, able-bodied, etc., over minoritized identities. Thus, equity is the pursuit of continuously building on cultural strengths and human potentials of diverse learners. That creates action to dismantle barriers to establish equal results for all. In addition, equity centers, minoritized identities, voices, and experiences in building and shaping cultural practices, systems, and values of the organization. So the hope is is that if that's the center framework for this, because I, I'm a vision, I'm a, I'm a values person. So for me, working in a group like if I know if this gets approved or this is the guide point for what we're saying our work is, anything that operates outside of that. Particularly if it gets adopted by the group, I we can go back and say, no, no, that's disingenuous or just incongruent with mm-hmm. what we say we believe. And so, I don't know, I'd like your thoughts on that. Like, do you think that's, because w- what I heard you say is we need to think about structure. We need mm-hmm. to think about the overarching system piece. Um. Is that a start or t- is it not enough or is it a place of where where, where else can we go from there if we pull from
3: no there? I absolutely think it's a start and I think that part of I, I mentioned this earlier about this lack of urgency that I was mm-hmm. feeling from the administrative level and from the regions I think that comes from the fact that I think a lot of times well number one I think that educators are brought to the table um, when we're forming policy around education I don't mm-hmm. think that that's happening enough I think that a lot of times people who aren't educators are the ones producing mm-hmm. the policies on uh, what education is supposed to li- look like, what these systems are supposed to be, What's what these systems are supposed to look like. That's number one. And number two, I think that, I think we're asking the wrong questions. I think, and I think that we're asking the wrong questions, and not only that, I think people have very different definitions about what diversity means, what equity means, and what inclusion means. Um, and so, and I re- we realize this in a lot of our conversations with these people because, these people, sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we, we realize this in a lot of our conversations because, um, I think one of the things I would say we succeeded at was we really challenged them to think about these issues in a different way, right? Because we really put them in a position to think about what does achievement really mean, right? Um, and does achievement really mean like all of these data, all of this th- all of this data that they're sending us and telling us that, you know, oh yeah, we're, this is how we're measuring success on campus, right. right? Or are we measuring, are we supposed to be measuring success in a different way, right? Because when we're seeing that, you know, uh, students of color are disproportionately disenfranchised from higher education, and when we're seeing that uh, students of color are uh, less likely to succeed in higher education, these are issues that are not addressed at that level, right? And they're not addressed in the ways that they should should be. Um, and I think that messaging was very, very important when we met with uh, uh, different departments on campus, different administrators on campus, um, because I think a lot of times it really kind of put them in their place. and. Um, you know they were quiet for a minute and they mm-hmm. didn't know how to respond um, and it really got them to think that okay maybe maybe we're examining these issues um, in a different way that is that probably isn't right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome.
0: Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Mm-hmm. We'll be back with this and Therese. and you. Hi there, this is Tom. Uh, As you heard at the beginning of this episode, this is our 10th episode of the Whiteness in America podcast. Erica and I are really excited to be on this project and we hope that you enjoy listening. Uh, We just wanted to plug our website for you uh, in case you haven't had a chance to check it out, whitenessinamerica.com. You can go there and read our bios, send us an email, give us some uh, topics about what you want to hear about on the podcast. Um, we're going to start using that as a platform for other things and promoting some other stuff going on as well as the show and hopefully some blogs in the background. You hear my newest daughter, Violet, probably squeaking away as I'm in the hospital recording this part of the episode right now. So, uh, we'll get back to our interview with Lucene and Tyrese. Here we go. All right, well, we're back, uh, in the, in the studios, uh, Dr. Bird, you had a question? I think you wanted to continue to pick up where
1: we left off. I love our studio. I love our studio. This is the best studio ever. It is. It's was very home-centered. Enter- <laughs> yeah, you know. It is. It's really good. I want to bring us to this question of power, though. Oh, yeah. Because I think even in the definition I just heard, power is there. But I'm curious. Like, you know, when we go and we make these cases to these administrators and they go silent.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then sometimes they kind of pay attention. And sometimes they just go off and do what they wanted to do originally. Right? And you kind of see that again and again and again. And I'm curious, how do we tap into, like, is, is power a component? Like, the power, not just the, the power to the equity, I like, guess, is, is like, I'm at the table and, and you're hearing my voice, but do I have now the power to enact the things that I'm presenting to you, right, right? like, you know, I, I, what I find is our institutions are very good at creating committees where, okay, we're going to put you all here on this committee, mm-hmm. and you're going to tell us a lot of stuff, and we ain't going to listen to most all uh, stuff yeah. but look, we made a committee. We'll cherry or, pick the
0: recommendations. Yeah. It's a interest convergence, right? And exactly. Yeah. We'll do what we think so, we're so comfortable doing. So,
1: for me, I guess the question is, how do we gain the power, or is power even a part of this conversation, like... Do we stop with just being able to make our voices heard in those spaces? And I, I kind of almost see it in the way that you guys are leveraging the student, like student power, mm-hmm. right? A collective power, like you have to listen to us. But but is there more we can do with with incorporating power into how we think about our organizing and think about the ways that we're pushing this forward? Because is that the
0: justice aspect of equity? So you have equity, which mm-hmm. is that, that statement kind of issue, and then the justice aspect is that reorganization structurally of power the power dynamic or whom has the ability to, to determine the powers mm-hmm. to situation is
1: well, that what kind of or like my question is like when do we ever give the power to the people like when do we say to the students hey we're going to give you the keys <laughs> and the pocket of money and say we're going to put the power in your hands to decide what we're going to do with this mm-hmm. like is that a, is that a thing that really i mean that's the thing i'm looking for but i'm yeah. wondering is that a thing that anyone's looking for in this process? When we're thinking about how do we reorganize these institutions?
2: Mm. I think unfortunately the way that our systems have been built, you may not ever get to that point. Mm. Um, So I think that our best strategy, at least in my opinion, is to make sure that those voices are always there Mm -hmm. um, and that it's never because even when we talk about the committees Mm -hmm. it's in a way of okay we're gonna let two students on this committee and it's always we hold the power and then we're allowing you to have a little bit of it Mm -hmm. um. and I think so we have to find ways to allow students to be just as powerful as anyone else in that room Mm -hmm. so if it does come to those individual kind of money type decisions Mm -hmm. then having students involved in that always um, I think that may be a realistic place for us to get. Because
1: you know I'm always in the no. utopia. I'm like, listen, no. <laughs> <you can't get laughs> let's do this. Come on, y'all, let's but do I, this. I think let's there's also it. fear on, <laughs> on
0: an administrative perspective, right? So I can I can speak to this a little bit, being somewhat of an administrator in my position. Like, there's fear in losing that control. I mean, that's what it's about, right? So me giving, and, and um, I'll just speak on a personal level. I was hired to do X things, right? And then if I did... If I well, first of all, me having just say, if I give up my power, it's like not taking it, which was really what it ought to be, right? Because we're a shared communal understanding of that. But there's then the possibility that the the direction of the movement may shift so significantly that my ability to stay in my position Mm -hmm. is questioned because we're not effective in the things that I was set out or tasked to be effective in. Because the dynamics have shifted because of the need, and I I, don't—I mean, I—I don't—I know it's probably more important to do that. But then, if the person who is in that position is removed, and they're an advocate for support or an accomplice, if you will, and then it goes back to a top-down space, like how do you negotiate? And I think that that's where, like, you know, Derek Bell and his work of interest convergence was way beyond, I think, just the legal aspect of it, because it's this power dynamic, because it is a constant compromise. And I still, as the person in a position of power, hold the keys mm-hmm. for how far I'm willing to compromise, uh-huh. right? And the universities are the same way right. as institutions of higher ed. The, the, the cabinet is setting the dynamics for that framework. Right. And until there's a significant upheaval mm-hmm. on some level, that's not going to change. But I wonder, though, um, the universities that survive the downturn in enrollment Will they do it because they actually start putting the keys in the hands of those that drive it more frequently? Mm. Um, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you an institution like ours, a regional serving institution, like we have to do something different. We can't mm-hmm. operate the way And so mm-hmm. we can either be scared mm-hmm. and do what, what the scared folks do, when you and which is collect all the power and then distribute it and yeah. have incremental change or maybe act a little differently. I don't know.
3: Yeah, no, and I think... Mm-hmm. I think a big part of that um, comes from uh, making sure that we don't get complacent and mm-hmm. making sure that we don't get, you know, th- that we don't just kind of sit back after things are created. Like, for example, this DI committee is a great example of this because, yes, it's been created, but we have to think about how was it created right. mm-hmm. and what is its mission now, who created that mission, and not only that, is it going to have the funding to do what mm-hmm. it's set out to do? Yeah. Because right now the answer to a lot of those is, number one, doesn't have the funding. Mm-hmm. It was made in the absence of key university stakeholders, and we don't know what the mission is because students weren't brought into that mission, right? They weren't part of the process. And when we met with, um, I'm not going to name names, because I don't know if I should, but
0: Those people. Those people. <laughs> when we met with
3: those people, um, they were like, oh, we're, we're still kind of, we're creating the charge of the committee, right? We're designing it based off of the Women's Commission, and you'll hear back from us soon about what, what it's actually going to look like. And those are the types of responses we were receiving, and I was like, Wait a minute. The only reason that this is coming up now is because the microaggressions campaign had just started with BSU, and that's the reason that you're, that's the only reason you're thinking about reviving this. At the time, diversity committee mm-hmm. was what it was mm-hmm. called. Mm-hmm. Um. And so yeah, I think that a part of that, and I think that that's a really interesting question that we have to constantly be thinking about, but we really just, we can't get comfortable, right? We Mm -hmm. can't, we have to keep pushing, we have to keep making sure that, you know, right now with this DEI committee being formed, we have to make sure that we're putting the right people at the table. We have to make sure that that mission is something that we're all a part of, and we have to make sure that we're constantly pressuring the administration to provide the funding necessary to execute the goals of what DEI is supposed to be set out to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. To expand resources and to make sure that we're designing support systems uh, for the students that come to fund.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting question, too, as, I mean, the two of you will continue on with your careers mm-hmm. and I'm assuming eventually be leaders of organizations, right, or lead things. And so as you get m- more and more m- power as a leader of an organization, how does that then reflect your current framework of, of um, activism and mm-hmm. and. Um, the way that you build coalitions because it's really easy and, and you and I have talked about this in the past, uh, you're I hope you don't mind saying if you do I can edit it out, right? but your resistance to wanting to take leadership positions at the university mm-hmm. in formal ways because at some point you give a little bit of yourself and no, at some absolutely. point you move up you give a little bit more of yourself and, and because it's easier, one, and two, the system and structure is designed to do that. I don't know you know, I, uh, when I was younger, when I was your age, when I started my career, I wanted to be a president of a university or a your chancellor of an institution. Um, I don't know if you could function for very long mm-hmm. in that way because it's so radically different. Mm-hmm. You'd have to find ways to build your coalition quickly mm-hmm. to be able to build enough support around you to then bump buck the system.
3: I mean it's it's bottom up change is what right. it is. It's, right. it's it's making sure that we're doing the work at the bottom um in order mm-hmm. to affect change at a higher level. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's what we that's what I've been inspired by in my, yeah. you know, short organizing experience that I've had here in Flint and outside. Uh but it's just been it's been really really important for me to make sure that even right now um for a long time I was considering going into public policy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um and specifically I want to go into educational policy. But something that kind of came to my mind uh, a year ago was... I don't want to (laughs) be another Mm -hmm. one of these policymakers that doesn't know what it's like to be in a classroom, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I kind of shifted gears a little bit and I actually decided to apply um, to the MSW program at Michigan Mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to kind of get that experience, get that community experience um, and really kind of understand what it's like to be in the classroom, what are these different dynamics that we need to explore first in order to kind of go into educational policy, produce policy that will actually create Mm -hmm. intentional change in education. Um, that will restructure these systems that we want to see changed. Um, and so that became really, really important to me um, as someone who like, had these you know, big goals growing up and saying, yes, I want to go into educational policy, that's what I want to do. But I was like, wait a minute, I'm not an educator. I don't know anything about this. And I want that experience first. I want to take that time to really understand what it's like to teach in a classroom, what it's like to be with mm-hmm. students in a classroom, um, what it's like to work in a community like Flint. Um, and so that became my my own goal, and that's actually why I I actually recently got accepted there. So congratulations! Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's exciting. When do you start? In September. Yeah, you can cut this off. <laughs> you want me to cut it out? No, no, no. I just because oh, I, I, I,
0: now this back and forth will be in there too, and that'll be fun. Oh, that'll be great. <laughs> I don't edit much because I'm lazy. Um, I only edit things I have to. Yeah. Oh, that's cool that's awesome
2: right thank you yeah that's exciting mm-hmm. i think for me it would be um if like being in the leadership position of just making sure you can check yourself and don't become obsessed with that power um don't become greedy mm-hmm. and then also thinking about the connections that you have mm-hmm. and making sure um like i said me and lucene are good friends but as part of that we're willing to challenge each other too mm-hmm. Um, So making sure that you have people in the room that are always willing to challenge you and are just going to listen to you because you are in that position of of power or or so, and they can make sure that you are having, um, that you're allowing those other voices to be voiced and heard in in that space. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also finding the organization that's willing to,
0: to be ready for that type of leadership because, you know, I... I don't know if you've ever interviewed for jobs like this or, or that, where you've had questions like, "What is your vision for this?" Mm-hmm. And my response to that when I interview for jobs is, "Well, it's not just up to me to make a vision, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What do?" You, and I'll turn it back, particularly depending on the group. If it's a group of, so um, if it's a group of students or a group of faculty, it's what What do you want our vision to be? Mm-hmm. This is our current status. These are some ideas I have, but mm-hmm. I'm one person. I can collectively bring us together, and that's my role, mm-hmm. right, as a leader, um, and. The response sometimes has been, well, we want someone that actually has bold vision, right? right? Because that's how we hire people. I mean, that's the current chancellor here, and I'm not going to speak ill of him because I like my job. Um, But (laughs) I'm assuming he was hired because he had a bold vision for what he saw for this university. And it seems based on the way that he operates, Mm -hmm. there's not much that's going to get in the way of that vision.
1: Well, I mean, when we think about these institutional structures, like when we talked about my reluctance to be promoted or mm-hmm. to do any to, in order to be promoted, a lot of times you have to embrace a certain leadership dynamic and a certain way of interacting with people that upholds the status quo, right? right? And so for me, it's like that, qu- I'm always questioning the game. Right. Like we always thought, okay, you got to play the game a certain kind of way, and if you play the game well, you'll be able to be in a position to make change. But But again, my question is, okay, what's this game we're playing that says that power looks only this way? And that structures look only this way, and and this is something that I'm. I'm we're always talking about, yeah. you know. And I'm always torn: do I continue to stay in the game, or do I work with a with a coalition of people who have a different vision of what the game is, mm-hmm. and do we work to build a different game? Um, and that's that's always an ongoing question, in the story of my life, like where where is my labor best put, right? And I guess you know, I don't know if we're um, if we have time for maybe one more question about where you're headed. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, the organizing you've done here on campus and the career paths that you have in front of you, what does your world look like and what, what kind of trouble are you going to get into next? <laughs> <laughs> Yours <is> more immediate. <laughs> itself,
3: you know. Yeah, I mean, I already said, I, I, so I recently got accepted into my the master's program, social work at uh, the University of Michigan uh, with an emphasis in uh, community change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really, really excited about that and to hopefully continue doing the kind of work that I'm already really doing now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm also right now uh, currently employed at the Arab American Heritage Council, Mm -hmm. um, and I do uh, marketing and outreach, I'm the marketing and outreach coordinator for them, um, and I'm doing a lot of census work for the 2020 census. Um, So I've been going out into the community, and really specifically for the Arab American community, um, because they've historically been Mm undercounted by the census. and just doing a lot of outreach to them and telling them, you know, hey, you should fill out the census. It's important, um, and kind of uh, really talking about a lot of the misconceptions that people have about what the census is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of where I'm headed right now. Um, Are you
0: a West Wing? Other you West Wing fans who watch the show, The West Wing.
3: I watched it in high school when my teachers would make us watch it, but I never. So wondered. there's
0: an episode called Mr. Willis of Ohio where they talk about the census and the historical framing of the census and. There's a proposal to change the census and it's really interesting because it it, um, it kind of talks about the the racial implications of census mm-hmm. when you go to representative sample sampling versus non-representative sampling mm-hmm. which is what the census fights mm-hmm. against is non-representative sampling even though they use representative sampling yeah. right so yeah it's really fascinating so anyway
2: sorry no, yeah, um, yeah so for me uh, right now I'm an organizer for the lectures union on campus mm-hmm. um, I'm primarily in Flint so uh, a lot of the work I'm doing with 1U and just in Flint in general will definitely continue. Um, I'm going to at least stick around there until uh, we get through bargaining next mm-hmm. year for the next mm-hmm. contract. Um, and then after that, the plan is to go to law school um, and eventually they, there may be a turn towards politics, um, but mm-hmm. whatever I'm doing, I just want to make sure it's meaningful and that I can impact people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty much it. I
0: think before we end today, we should probably get to you, uh, as Erica called it earlier, nonsense in the news. Apparently, Kansas City is no longer part of Missouri, Um, so (laughs) sorry, Missouri, you have just lost representation and voices and all sorts of things. Um, uh, But anyways, a couple things came out last week. One, um, the U.S. courts have ruled that there was a dreadlock ban, um, and that has been found legal during a hiring process, and what they found is that race-neutral grooming policies are not considered discriminatory practice because hairstyles, while culturally associated with race... Are not immutable physical characteristics, yeah. and that is the legal finding. So I wanted to bring that up today for discussion, Erica. And I've talked a lot about the concept of professionalism and yeah. what they do to maintain and uphold white supremacy in practice and work. Um, but this is just another thing of, um, in my opinion, of race neutrality upholding um, and color neutrality upholding whiteness in, in structure.
1: Yeah, like how can you even say that this is race neutral? Like, I mean, like anyone who's ever had to like modify themselves and any kind of way to move in the public spaces, like for me. Um, You know, when I was in the job market, I straightened my hair for a bit because it was just like, oh, I wonder, you know, how will people receive me, right? And that's clearly all the message that I've gotten my entire life is that straightened, relaxed hair is more professional. And that's when people actually said, oh, you look so professional. Oh, you look so nice. Like, it was like people were excited about that. And it's not race neutral, right? It's professional, but it's professional for how I, as as a black woman, have to tame my body. In order to fit in right and there's so many other ways I have to tame myself. Right. I have to hide my dialect, I got to hide my language I got to hide all kind of elements of myself and so just to get through the day Just to get through the day or to get through the door right yeah. right And again it's kind of coming back to that question we had earlier about how do you move up in a system um, many ways for me to move up the system I have to lose so many dimensions of my ethnic and cultural identity to be seen as professional or to be seen as an effective leader that it's like is it, is it worth that thing that I give up? And, and is it worth it for me to say to someone coming after me, this is what you have to do in order to move up? And so that's always a, um, a question I have. So this kind of just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> brings up <an laughs> a long-standing yeah. irritation of mine. And I, I'm always caught,
0: when because you know, we talk a lot about, I work with various administrators in education, and it's always interesting to me when we get calls or we get an email saying, oh, x student is not being not demonstrating professionalism or not dressed professionally. And um, my radar always goes up. Okay, so who's setting the dynamics for what professional is? What are they excluding? What are they including? How does that impact? Like all these sorts of things. And, and so it really is, it's, it's, it's generally very coded. Mm-hmm. It's coded language for, they're not fitting the framework of, of, of how we see the expectation of professionalism, which is generally dominated by a white cultural mm-hmm. lens which is really interesting. I don't know if either of you have ever ran into that or experienced or been able to name that or have reactions to this.
2: Oh, yeah, I think, I mean, just, like, touching on kind of uh, what Erica said, like, there's a lot of spaces where I will go in the room and I'm the only black person there, you know, and you do feel like you have to, I guess, sacrifice part of yourself or make sure, like, this part doesn't shine through. It's always a question of, how black can I be in this Mm -hmm. moment, you know, or I have to be this specific type of black person and it can be exhausting. Mm -hmm. Um, And even, so I think that if you haven't had that experience in life, then something like, a lot of people might say, well, why doesn't he just cut his dreadlocks? Mm -hmm. But it's like, that's a part of who that person is, that's a part of what has become their identity um, and you're asking them to constantly sacrifice themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's and it's already frustrating. We live in a in a society that, you know, as a black man, if I'm if I was to get upset about something in a meeting, right, I have to really be conscious of of how angry am I in this moment, right? Um, of I have to kind of come out and be happier and be or and I need to be cool in a sense because black people are supposed to be cool, but then I can't be too cool because then that's gonna lead to that unprofessional thing. I um, mean, it's, it's an exhausting uh, process, definitely.
1: I have, I have mastered the happy face. I have mastered going into class and being the cheerful teacher. I'm always so cheerful. I go to meetings, hey, like that's my life. And people don't realize that when I go home, how exhausted I am because it's, a, it's literally a performance throughout the whole day. And if I show any hint of frustration, um, I had colleagues say, you're angry, Erica. And it was true, I'm angry. But I'm like, oh, no, I've been hiding that. I'm not supposed to show you I'm angry because that's going to lead to a whole lot of other. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: at some ways. point, you just want to say, like, yes, I'm <laughs> angry. So what? Like, you've been <laughs> that's angry that's here, that's too. Right. You know, and that's right. definitely yeah. frustrating. Yeah. But I think it's interesting. I mean, we talked a lot about, when we talked about leadership extension, like, how much do
0: you lose of yourself as mm-hmm. you kind of do that? And it's the same kind of thing of, after doing that for so long, how much do you lose of who you actually are? And now you're just... I mean, you've been totally colonized mm-hmm. in this frame, right? And so mm-hmm. it's it's really um, problematic That's and right. harmful. For, really
1: yeah. So. I mean, in my mind, I'm again. My my dilemma always is coming back to what's my contribution to the next generation, right? And in the power that I have, can I create spaces where more and more they can go through them and not become colonized? Right. And I'm losing patience with, you know, I think my generation before me was saying well you got to decolonize in order to make headway for us <laughs> right and I'm like you know what maybe not yeah maybe my job is to create that decolonized space so that if I can you know ethically usher in that next generation that's a space where they can be who they are um, their gender identity their ethnic identity whatever it might be can be present without being harmed um, and maybe I'm losing faith that our institutions are capable of doing that if if this is that constant, pushback that says, oh no, in order for us to survive, we have to continue doing what we've been doing and later on, <laughs> we'll figure out how to bring people in. Once right? we have more resources. Yeah, once we have more resources, we'll bring people in ah, 20 years from now. Right? Yeah. And so it's like... And
2: yet a whole other generation goes by. Right.
1: right so now. that's the that's ongoing dilemma of mine.
2: Yeah. And I think it, dev- it puts you in a tough position because mm-hmm. if you are that only um, black person or any other minority in the room, it's, okay, if I attempt to reform this space and I get rejected, and now I'm not in the room anymore, that's right. have we lost that hope completely? That's right. um, and I think that's really, that's a difficult mm-hmm. situation for people to be in. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes your fault. Be- oh,
1: because you were mm-hmm. too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now look at you, have ruined it. <laughs> You're not in the room anymore. Like that's that's the that's the balance, right? That we're always having to, because um, you carry the weight of the whole world when it, the institutions create this kind of dynamic for you. Right? And so it's just like, you know what? And it's an ongoing struggle, right? right. Because like, we're always put in the position to have to be the one challenging, and we do the work, and then we take a break from it. We rest, we recover, we find those places that kind of support us, and we come back to the work. And thinking about, you know, again, that for some of us, that's a toll that's always put on us, like to to be the only one, <laughs> or to be that only voice, and trying to mobilize that, like what you're doing, that that collective effort of like, okay, how do I get more people to help sh- shoulder some of this burden of being that voice in these spaces. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing mm-hmm. struggle. It really is. <laughs> thank
0: you both for taking the time to talk with us today it's been really an honor to have you both joining us in the in the studio (laughs) for this (laughs) conversation um you know part of the reason i got into and i wanted to work in higher ed was to um work with students and even though my position is somewhat not as connected with students as it could be Mm -hmm. um when i met the two of you i felt very inspired and and it was reminding it reminded me somewhat lit a fire in my work to Recenter and rethink, and, and kind of was a good reminder. But you know, I'm, I'm very, I have a lot of optimism for the future. If you are the, you two are the, mm-hmm. what our our current generation of graduates are now. Eric and I had this conversation coming in. You're not millennials, right? I just not. You're Gen Z. Oh, and you are. I'm, yeah, oh, he you're is. A millennial. yeah, he okay. is. millennial.
3: Yeah. Okay.
1: And but you're not. No. right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a Zennial, I, I'm on the cusp. Yeah. You know yeah. yeah. what well, <laughs> year were you born? If you don't uh, remember. 79. Oh, so, yeah. So like right on the cusp between. And the yeah,
0: me too. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm more millennial than you are. So, anyway, any final thoughts, Dr. No,
1: Bro? I thank you guys for, like, again, always the work that you're doing. And I'm glad that we get this on tape because people can hear what you've, like, the roadmap that yeah. you've laid for the work. And I think that's really important. Sometimes, we come to the work and get overwhelmed because we don't know how to move forward. And I think what you've shared
2: today for me is
1: like, oh, okay, let me take some notes. <laughs> I can incorporate that in how I move. So I, I, appreciate, I appreciate everything that you guys shared. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we thank were both so very
2: excited to come on. So thanks for yeah. having yeah. me. Sure. <laughs> Final thoughts?
0: Anything you want to share before?
2: Uh, I mean, I just I think that I enjoyed the conversation we had today. I, I, I hope, like you said, that it is helpful to other people who want to get into activism or organizing. Um, and I think that if we're able to move one person at a time, I think there's a lot of other young people that are just like us doing work. Um, and we can make a lot of change. If
0: our millions of listeners want to contact you to get <laughs> advice,
2: is there a way that they can do that? That you're yeah. comfortable sharing? Yeah, I mean, even like email, uh T-D-E-N-S-O-N, uh, t-d-e-n-s-o-n at umich.edu. A good way to reach out. Okay.
3: Yeah, and uh, mine is uh, Lucine L-U-C-I-N-E-J at umich.edu. You can um. also follow us on social media. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. That's, great. that's great. Of course, we have our uh, Twitter account at Disrupt Whiteness with only one S on whiteness because Twitter, again, is weird with the amount of characters you can have in a name. It's not that I'm like the president and can't spell. I can spell better than he does (laughs) um uh, yeah dr Brett, anything no i
1: I think this is great um continue you know doing the work that we are all doing fighting a good fight and we'll see you next you next time take care thank you
0: thank you